Uh, Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11? We continue our series, Champions of Faith, Running with the Champions. Last week we spoke about Moses, and I almost just skipped over what these last few verses tell us about him and went on to the next one, but a couple things got my attention in verses 27 through 29. That is the relationship of faith and fear. Faith and fear. So we're going to look at verses 27 through 29. Moses, the champion of faith and fear. In verse 27, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they, that is now the children of Israel, passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Let's pray. Lord, we sit here before you in your presence and we open up our hearts to the work of your spirit. We want your hand to skillfully, as a surgeon would, do work on our hearts, our thought patterns, deal with our fears, replace those unnecessary ones with your faith, trust and confidence in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday, Nathan and I were taking a little drive, and we were talking, and he said, Daddy, what is your worst nightmare? That is, what is the worst thing you've ever had a bad dream about? He was telling me all about his bad dreams and his nightmares. And we just had a little discussion about those things that cause fear. And probably each one of us this morning has something that is our greatest fear, something that causes the most pain and anxiety and fear. Um, There was a country preacher who decided to buy a horse. So we went to the dealer, and the dealer said, Now, Reverend, we just want you to know that this horse has been raised and uh, treated in a religious atmosphere. And this horse does not respond to your typical commands. It doesn't respond to giddy-up and doesn't respond to woe when you want it to slow down. Because it's been raised in a religious atmosphere, it will respond to spiritual commands. If you want this horse to get up and go, you say, Praise the Lord! That horse will, boom, gallop. You want the horse to slow down or stop, you say, Amen! He just said, that's easy. So he got on the horse, saddled up, said, praise the Lord. Off the horse went toward his house. He was real excited until a rabbit crossed the road, spooked the horse. The horse veered off in the wrong direction, started going to the open pasture toward a 200-foot cliff. This pastor panicked. And in his panic, he reverted to his old methods. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. But the horse didn't respond. Finally, he figured out, oh, yes. And he said, Amen. And the horse came to a screeching halt just at that precipice overlooking that 200-foot drop. And sweating, the pastor said, Praise the Lord. (laughs) His worst fear. Fear can immobilize people. Professionals call them phobias. And they tell us that phobias, fear, is the most constricting of any emotion. It ranges all the way from just a slight being uneasy to uh, complete intimidation. 
In fact, some say that fear is debilitating. Walter Stone said, Fear is the most destructive force in the world today. It is much easier to frighten people than to persuade them. Fear causes people to draw back from situations. It brings on mediocrity. It dulls creativity. And it sets one up to be a loser in life. There are some who have even experienced their worst fears. Not many, but some have experienced their worst possible fear. Job lost his children. He lost everything he owned. And at the end he said, That which I have feared has come upon me. But on the other hand, certain fears are healthy. We need certain types of fears. There's the fear of fire. It's good to have that kind of fear. I remember when my son learned what hot was. And I had a cup of coffee on the table and he came over to touch it and I said, that's hot. But he kept going for it. No, 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 that's hot. But he kept going for it. Finally, I said, you know, he's got to learn. So he put his hand inside the coffee cup, grabbed that hot coffee and he learned what hot was. But he didn't completely learn it. One time I was in Los Angeles and I got a phone call from my wife and she said, Nathan finally learned the meaning of hot. He now has a healthy fear of stoves because he put his hand this afternoon on that orange hot griddle on the electric stove. He learned. Fear is good in certain areas. Even animals have certain fears that keep them alive. There was a group of college students from Toronto who went out on a lake, hired a captain, hired a boat. As they were going out on one of the lakes, the captain noticed that a storm was coming suddenly. And his face grew pale and he looked very worried. And the college students just laughed. They said, ah, we're not afraid. The captain said, that's right, you're too ignorant to be afraid. There are certain things we need to have a healthy fear of. The Bible also talks about the fear of the Lord, which is a misunderstood concept among many people. But the fear of the Lord is the first step in godly living. Solomon said, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and also the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, Hebrews was written, and chapter 11 is sort of the icing on the cake. Hebrews 11 is written to young Jewish Christians tempted to quit because they were afraid. You see, these young Jewish believers had now trusted in Christ. They were now being hassled by their relatives and friends who were still Jewish and didn't want anything to do with the Christian faith. They were putting pressure on them. They were ostracizing them from their jobs, from their communities. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, Be like Moses. Don't quit. Don't be afraid. Now these three verses tell us a few things about faith and fear. First of all, that faith overcomes unnecessary fear. Secondly, faith develops godly fear. And finally, faith calms other people's fears. Those are found consecutively in verses 27, 28, and 29. Look with me at verse 27 for just a moment. Faith overcomes unnecessary fear. By faith, Moses forsook or simply left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. This is referring to the second time that Moses got up and left Egypt. When he finally left Egypt, he was not afraid, though the king threatened to kill him, though he had threats upon his life and his life was in jeopardy, Moses was not afraid of the commands of Pharaoh. But there was another time that Moses left Egypt. Actually, he left Egypt twice. 
The first time he left was not under good conditions. And when he left, he was scared. He was afraid. He came back 40 years later. And with great confidence and boldness in God, he was able to deliver the children of Israel out without fear. But I thought it would be very important that we contrast the first and the second time that Moses left Egypt. So, would you turn left, way left, and go back to Exodus chapter 2 for just a moment. And uh, you should just keep a marker in Exodus 2 this morning. Look in verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2. It came to pass in those days when Moses was grown up that he went out to his brethren, he looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way. In other words, he's looking behind his shoulders to see if anybody is seeing him. When he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. And he went out the second day beholding two Hebrew men. They were fighting and they said, He said to the one who did the wrong, Why are you striking your companion? Now Moses went out there thinking, They're going to notice that I'm their deliverer. I'm going to come out and I'm going to show myself that I'm strong. So he goes, Hey, how come you're fighting each other? But here's the response. They said, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? You intend to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? So Moses feared and he said, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, when Moses left, was he afraid? Absolutely. He feared the wrath of the king, but Hebrews 11 said when he left, he didn't, because that's something that happened 40 years after this incident that we just read. Now, the first time, Moses is in between a rock and a hard place. He forsook Egypt, so to speak. He gave his mom the speech, I refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I'm going to identify with those Hebrew people. And he said, I'm going to prove to them that I'm their deliverer. It backfired. Moses resorted to force. That's the only thing he knew. Forceful authority. It backfired on him. He became afraid. He had to leave Egypt for 40 years. Now he's sitting by a well singing, I did it my way. And he botched it up. Can you relate to that? Have you ever gotten your mitts on something? And it's kind of like the old, hey, thanks a lot, but I don't need your help, God. I'll take care of this one. And then we goof it up so badly. We botch it up so badly. Fortunately, God can come in and redeem it and still work with us like he does with Moses. But the point is this. God's battles are not won in the pride of human strength. You don't impress God. God doesn't applaud that type A personality who pushes people out of his way to get stuff done. In fact, Jesus said, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. God said to Zechariah, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord. What Moses needed to learn is that to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt to Canaan required a lot more power and strength than Moses himself could muster up. It would take a divine intervention, and God was about to show Moses that, but Moses had to find out that he himself was not strong enough to do it. You see, there's a difference between faith and presumption. Moses presumed when he went and he killed that Egyptian. He presumed, I'm the deliverer, I better prove myself. It backfired on him and he left. Forty years later, he will come back with confidence in God and he won't have to leave. He won't have to look this way or that way to see if anybody's looking. He won't care. He'll be out there to please the Lord. In fact, 
listen to Moses' testimony 40 years after this incident. I'm going to read a section after the children of Israel passed through the Red Sea. You don't have to turn to it. Just listen to Moses' song. He says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is His name. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. See, 40 years before, Moses tried it. He killed one and it backfired. When God did it, He wiped them all out and it didn't backfire. It worked. And now Moses declares, You, Lord, are the man of war. It's your right hand that has given this victory. What Moses did is often what we try to do. In fact, let me go a step further. The modern church tries to do what Moses tried to do the first time. It is not verbalized, but it comes across in many sections of God's church today. This idea of, hey, Holy Spirit, thanks a lot for the first 2,000 years, but we got it wired now. We've got it organized. Thank you, really. We don't need you anymore. There are other people farther in much greater need than, than we are. A.W. Tozer in the 1950s said, If the Holy Spirit left the church today, 95% of its activities would carry on as usual. Now, what does God do? Well, fortunately, God loves Moses. doesn't put him on the shelf, but he takes him to school, 40 years of school, until he gets a BSD degree. That's right, backside of the desert diploma. One of the best schools you can get. He takes him to the desert. He humbles him. He breaks him. He weakens him. He empties him of all of his pride and all of his presumption. And when Moses is at his weakest point possible, God says, now... You are ready to be used. And he calls him. Hudson Taylor, a name that some of you have heard, one of the greatest missionaries to China, returned to England. And after having years of a disease that wore his body down, he became very weak. He spoke to a London missionary society and he said, God has chosen me because I was weak enough. God does not do his great works by large committees but he trains someone to be quiet enough and little enough, and then he uses them. So the first time when Moses left, he was afraid. He split. He was afraid of the wrath of the king. Forty years later is what our verse speaks about. When Moses comes back to Egypt at the command of God, 40 years later, there is a new pharaoh on the block. He's very different from the first He hates Moses with a passion. And every time Moses stands before him, the Pharaoh hardens his heart a step further. Moses stands before him and says, as Charlton Heston said in the movie, let my people go. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Till finally there was a last confrontation. Moses stands before the Pharaoh, gives his demand of God, and this is what the Pharaoh says. Get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For on the day that you see my face, you shall surely die. Now Moses' life is really in jeopardy. There's not a day that goes by that his life is not at the brink of death. And he knows it. Pharaoh had absolute authority in Egypt. He was like a god. He didn't need a reason to kill people. Pharaoh could have a bad hair day and kill people and get away with it. And Moses knew that his life was in jeopardy, but this time, instead of leaving and fleeing because he's scared, he stands up. In fact, Moses looked at him in the face. He said, fine, you will not see my face anymore. And with great boldness, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. 
Folks, fear is one of Satan's greatest and most effective weapons. You might not face what Moses faced. But what about the fear of being different? What about that fear that comes and creeps in and you say, gosh, I don't know if I want to share my faith in Jesus Christ in this setting. It's going to be so different. These guys aren't believers. I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb. Or the fear of losing our reputation. Or the fear of being criticized. And we could go down the list. There are lots of them. When those fears come, we are then tempted to bow to men rather than stand before God, right? Solomon said, the fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man brings a snare, Proverbs 25. Now, Abraham found that out. Abraham, years before, was too scared to trust God. He went down to Egypt. He lied about Sarah, his wife. He said, Sarah, just tell everybody you're my sister. I don't want to lose my head. That fear of what other people would think caused a snare and it caused him to lose his testimony. Saul, the first king of Israel, found out that the fear of man brings a snare. When he came back from one of the battles, he had disobeyed God completely. Samuel pointed his prophetic finger at him and said, Why did you disobey God? And this is what Saul said. I have sinned. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. Pilate found out the same truth. Jesus Christ stood before Pilate, and Pontius Pilate knew that this man was innocent, that he should be let go. But because of the pressure that was put upon him by the chief priests and the people, it says in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, the voices of the chief priests and the voices of the people prevailed. And he gave in to their wish. He was too afraid. The fear of man brings a snare. A person without confidence in God does exactly what Moses did the first time. He looks this way and that way. He's afraid of what other people think, what other people will say if they see him. A person who has confidence in God doesn't look this way and that way. He looks that way. He's only cared what God thinks about him. He didn't care of the praises of men or of the criticisms of men as much as, what does God think? The first time he was scared. second time he had confidence in God. Listen to David. In one of his most famous psalms, Psalm 27, David said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Literally translated, of whom shall I be intimidated? Ever been intimidated by a person? A certain strong personality just wants to shut you down and you don't want to really be yourself or say what you feel? You're intimidated. David said, the Lord's my strength. I'm not going to be intimidated by anybody. And boy, he lived up to that, didn't he? Here's little David. Here's big Goliath. Didn't intimidate David. David walked right up to him and said, who are you to defy God? I'm going to feed you to the birds of the air, Goliath. Matthew Henry said, We need not look upon those enemies with fear whom God looks upon with contempt. Interesting custom from ancient pagan Germany and Holland. Years ago, the people of those regions were so superstitious, they believed that their gods lived within trees. And if they were in a forest, most of them were surrounded by forests, They believed that if the gods could overhear that any good thing had happened to humans, that the gods would become jealous and angry. And so if they would share with one another some good thing that would happen, they would go up to a tree nearby and rap on the tree, hoping to drive the gods away. Hence the term, knock on wood. That's where it comes from. Oh, I'm so afraid. Knock on wood. 
Do you knock on wood or do you clutch the rock of Jesus Christ? The Lord is my strength, my shield, my light, my salvation. Of whom shall I be intimidated? So first principle we find here is that faith overcomes unnecessary fear. Now look at the next verse in Hebrews 11, verse 28. We see that faith develops godly fear. By faith he, Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. What's it referring to? It's referring to the last plague that happened in Egypt, the death of the firstborn. God said, I'm going to send my angel through the land. All the firstborn will die as the ultimate testimony that I'm in charge. The Egyptians will know that I am God. He, Pharaoh has hardened his heart so much, but after this point, this will be it. Moses, what you're going to have to do is tell the children of Israel to kill a lamb, an innocent lamb, take its blood, put it on the lintels and doorposts. The death angel will pass over you. It took faith to do that. It act, took actual faith to go ahead, kill a lamb, and sprinkle its blood. I mean, it seems a little foolish, doesn't it? Kill a lamb and my family's going to be okay? What medical scientific proof is there that that works? It seems kind of ludicrous that all I have to do is put innocent blood over my door and the angel of death is going to pass me by. But that night, Moses and the children of Israel had to decide to obey the authority of Pharaoh or the word of God. And therein lies a significant difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A lot of people say, well, I have faith, but that's not important. What is important is the object of your faith. What do you believe in? Who do you believe in? It's not the amount of faith, it's the object of faith. Uh, the Egyptians had plenty of faith in Pharaoh. Moses had faith that if I put the blood over my doorpost, I'm going to be saved from death. And so an unbeliever will look at Christian faith and say, oh, come on. You're telling me that the death of a man 2,000 years ago will save my sin in the 1990s? That's ludicrous. But a Christian believes it and applies the blood to his life and takes the authority of God over the authority of man. Now notice the last part of that verse. It indicates that Moses had faith in God because he had a healthy fear of God. It says, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Moses did run around that night and say, hey, let's play outside. Let's see if this is really true. He said, get in the house, lest we also be consumed. There's only one place of safety, and that's in the house where the blood has been applied. There is something, folks, almost totally non-existent in the modern church. It's called the fear of God. It's not talked about much. Don't talk to me about those fear sermons, that fire and brimstone. And on one hand, I can understand people have been beaten up with fire and brimstone sermons traditionally over the years, but there is a great lack of the biblical fear of God, which is not negative. It is seen as a positive characteristic in the Bible. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, we read. Um, when we talk about fear of God, we mean respect, literally. The idea is that we respect, reverence, and honor God so much that we don't want to do anything that would hurt Him. Ungodly fear is that I'm afraid God will allow me to get hurt. Godly fear is that I would do something to hurt God. That's the difference. Years ago in Germany again, Hamburg, a plague hit Europe. People were dying of cholera. And when the death rate arose to a high level, guess what? The churches were packed. But as soon as that plague abated, guess what? 
the churches emptied out. They weren't there because of the fear of the Lord, the respect and reverence and awe of God. They were there because they were afraid of the cholera. Have we seen anything like that in recent times? About the Gulf War. Remember? Churches were swollen. It was on national news. People were lining up even in this church, up on the stage and down the aisle, standing in the back at every service. The Gulf War produced a lot of churchgoers, but not God-fearers. As soon as the war was over, it's like, whoo, I can get back out and have fun again. It wasn't sincere. To Ezekiel, God spoke of the children of Israel with that same mentality at one point. He said, so they come to you as people do, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they don't do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Now, as much as the fear of man brings a snare, we need to develop godly fear, healthy, godly, biblical fear of God. In fact, the one characteristics that unsaved people are said to have is, or not have is the fear of God. Romans chapter 1, it gives all of the list of things that unbelievers don't have and what they're like. And Paul said, the fear of God is never before their eyes. In contrast to that, one of the motivations that Christians have in telling other people about Jesus Christ is a healthy respect and reverence for God. In the book of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. It's also one of the motivations in godly living. Same book, but chapter 7, Paul said, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit and perfect holiness in the fear of God. One of the chaplains, ex-chaplains to the United States Senate, said... Men who fear God face life fearlessly. Men who do not fear God end up fearing everything else. You know, one of the greatest examples I found of that was during the war, World War II, when London was being bombed by the enemy. Christians wrote that during that time, even though they hear the bombs at night and the bullets at night, they knew that their life was on the brink of death. They spoke about the peace of God that filled their hearts. And one congregation filled with such peace in the midst of war and seeing that the city was shaken by this, posted a sign out in front of the church one Sunday morning so that everybody could read who passed by. It said, If your knees knock, kneel on them. In other words, you have a healthy fear of God and you don't need to fear anything else. And they did. So, faith overcomes unnecessary fear. Faith develops godly fear. And finally, the last verse, faith can calm other people's fears. Verse 29, By faith they, the Israelites, passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. That's one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the Red Sea crossing. And the Scripture says it that the sea actually went back, stood up, and the riverbed became dry and the children of Israel crossed over. That's one of the most ridiculed stories by non-believers. I've had people, after I've shared that message or we talked about the Red Sea, they come up and go, now come on, skip. I'm a college graduate, all right? I studied Kierkegaard. I studied David Hume. I know that these things don't happen. And you say the Bible says that, but these things don't actually happen. You expect me to believe that? It actually stood up? Just like nine-year-old Joey, who went to Sunday school and the teacher taught that morning all about the Red Sea and the children of Israel going through the Red Sea and 
Joey came home and mom said, what did you learn today? So, well, we learned about the children of Israel crossing the Red Sea. She said, well, what did your teacher tell you? So he read what he had written down. He said, this is how it happened, mom. God sent Moses behind enemy lines on a rescue mission to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. But when he got to the Red Sea, he had his army corps of engineers build a pontoon bridge and all the people walked across it safely. Then he used his walkie-talkie to radio headquarters for reinforcements. And they sent bombers in to blow up that bridge and all the Israelites were saved. She said, Joey, did your teacher in our church tell you that in Sunday school? He said, well, no, she didn't, Mom, but if I told it to you the way she did, you'd never, ever believe it. (laughs) It's hard for people to believe that. I have no problem with that personally. It just depends how big your God is. God created the heavens and the earth. It's not a big deal for God to do that. And then I've heard the explanations people have is, well, actually, it's not the Red Sea, it's the Reed Sea, which is 18 inches of water that enabled the children of Israel to wade through. Two and a half million people could easily wade through and get from one side to the other. Either way, you have a great miracle because that would mean that the entire Egyptian army was drowned in 18 inches of water. (laughs) Pretty good. Either way, it's a miracle. But when the children of Israel got to that point, something happened that caused them to panic They became so uptight, so full of fear that God used Moses to calm them down because now Moses has become a man of confidence. So I'd like you to turn back to Exodus and look at a brief account in chapter 13. Exodus 13. Go to your marker, turn right, Exodus 13. Now as you read this account, there's a premise I'd like you to pick up on. Unbelief is contagious. So is faith. People who are confident in God instill faith in other people. Pessimistic people will produce pessimistic people. Those who complain will produce complainers. But men of faith and women of faith can instill confidence as well. Both are contagious. All right, look back at chapter 13, verse 21. They're leaving Egypt. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, and so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Isn't that awesome? Wouldn't you love to get guidance that way? And wouldn't it be great if God says, I'm going to lead you, and you look out the front door in the morning and by your car is a pillar of smoke. And uh, God just says, get in your car and follow it, and I'll lead you. That'd be awesome. The children of Israel had that kind of guidance system. God was just leading them miraculously through this pillar of fire and cloud. Only one big problem. God wasn't about to lead them to a place of safety at first. God was about to lead them into a predicament that would cause them to flip out. This is what happened. As they were leaving Egypt, let me back up. If you were in Egypt and wanted to get to Israel, the quickest route is to go north, up by the modern-day Suez Canal, take the coast up, and you'd be in the land. God says, go south into the desert and then turn west toward the Red Sea. As they did, if you could be there to see what it looked like, in front of you would be the Red Sea. You couldn't pass through it. On one side of you would be a mountain range and a desert. On the other side, another mountain range and a desert. You would be in a cul-de-sac geographically. You would be most vulnerable militarily. 
The only way out is the way you came in. Which made matters worse. Because the Egyptians are right behind them and boxed them in. You know what? God will often do that. God does not owe it to us to always lead us to a place where we go, Oh, good. That's better. That's the Lord. I feel so much better. It's so safe and happy. Now, sometimes God will put you in impossible situations to show you that He has resources you know nothing of. And He does that to the children of Israel. He did it with Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle was going to Jerusalem, and he said to the Ephesians, The Holy Spirit is testifying to me in every single city I go that imprisonment and chains await me in Jerusalem. God's been telling me that. God's leading me to Jerusalem. But everywhere I go, He says, This is what I'm leading you into, Paul, imprisonment and chains. What did Paul say? He said, None of these things move me. Neither do I count my life dear to myself that I might finish my course with joy. All right. The Egyptians pursue. They look behind. The children of Israel look behind. The dust of the army of the Egyptians is behind them. Verse 9 of chapter 14. The Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea besides Pihahiroth before Belzaphon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. They're trapped. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness? You hear those ungrateful words? A few months before, they were crying out to God, God, please, we'll do anything. Just deliver us from Egypt. God says, All right, here's Moses. Here's ten plagues, and here's a pillar to lead you. But the first time they get into a jam, they start complaining, murmuring, and becoming filled with fear. Now, before you castigate them, do we do that? When something happens that is beyond our control, we're experiencing a move of God in our life, and then from out of nowhere, boom, something happens. And it's out of our control. And we go, God, you call this abundant life? Are we having fun yet, God? I don't like this. Why did you lead me here? And our reaction is much like the children of Israel. In those situations... We need people who can inspire confidence in God, don't we? One of the worst things we can do is to leave the place of fellowship, to retreat all by ourselves, and let those trials swallow us up. We need to find people who trust God and instill confidence in us. Let's see what God does through Moses. Look at verse 13. Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand still. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Now, when Moses said that, how do you think they took it at first? He said, stand still. Don't be afraid. Stand still. Stand still? What is your reaction when something happens to you? Get moving. Fix it. i got to be busy. i got to figure out a solution to this. But what could the children of Israel do? Where are they going to go? Are they going to go forward? Unless God parts the waters, they won't. Are they going to go over those mountain ranges with all of those Egyptians? No. What can you do? Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you today. How did Moses have such faith? Well, number one, hindsight. He looked back and he saw that 
God led us, gave us a pillar, performed ten plagues, miraculously delivered us. He's not going to bring us out here to die. He's got to do something. Besides that, I'm not going to go around killing Egyptians. I tried that once. I'm going to stand still. Not only hindsight, but insight. Insight. In the first few verses of chapter 14, God tells Moses what he's going to do. Moses, this is what I'm doing. I'm leading the children of Israel to this place, but I'm going to prove to the Egyptians and to Israel once for all that I am big, I'm powerful. So Moses had inside information because he was living close in fellowship with God. There's a secret there. If you live close to God, you'll have faith. If you live far from God, you'll fear. He had insight and he had hindsight. He said, stand still. Watch what God's about to do. Now, there's an interesting relationship of faith and fear. Faith overcomes unnecessary fear. It develops godly fear. It overcomes other people's fears. It calms them. What is your eye on this morning, folks? Is your eye on the wrath of that king, that person in your life? You're just so afraid of what's going to happen. Is your eye on the army of the Egyptians? Or is your eye on the Lord? You know that the devastation, the potential devastation that the children of Israel saw, they saw the Egyptians coming, they saw the Red Sea, they saw the mountains, and they said, we're toast. They saw more the potential devastation than the potential of God to overcome it. The Bureau in Washington, D.C. of Standards tells us that a dense fog covering seven city blocks that is 100 feet thick is only comprised of one glass of water dispersed into 600 billion tiny particles. And when thus dispersed, take your vision of everything else in front of you away. So often we're confronted with a situation and we see only the potential devastation, not the potential that God could do to overcome it. What does your future hold? I don't know. You don't know. And because of that, you can get afraid. You've got kids. You see what's happening around you. You become afraid for your kids' sake. You hear of terrorism. Fear grips your heart. But as Corey Ten Boom said, never be afraid to trust a known God with an unknown future. You don't know what your future holds, but God does. He holds your future, and you can trust Him. And clinging to Him will overcome unnecessary fear. It will develop godly fear, and it will help calm other people's fears. And so, Heavenly Father, we must turn now to You to trust an unknown future to a known God. And for those of us who know You, we make a fresh commitment to trust You, to live close to You, that our faith might be built up, that we might say with David, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? God's on my side. And finally, Father, we pray for those who can't trust an unknown future to a known God because they don't know you yet. Everything is dark around them. I pray that today would be a day of commitment. In Jesus' name.